What's the story of hockey enrollment in Canada? Has our national sport, and in many ways, our national pride changed? In this episode, and in the ones that follow, we will put facts and figures to the ideas we've introduced on the podcast. Recent data from the International Ice Federation suggests enrollment in minor hockey has flattened over the last five years. Why is that? Many individual organizations across the country have observed the same trend, including the association in which my boys are enrolled. For those involved in the organization and culture of youth hockey, this trend is concerning and raises the question, what is the future of hockey in Canada? Down to the rink, to the pond, to the river, there's a game going on, going on forever. Nationwide, registration has been stagnant for a number of years, um, while the population of Canada continues to grow. Um, so, you know, I'm not a math major, but, but over time, that means you're reaching fewer and fewer Canadians. And, you know, taking a look at Peterborough, um, you know, Peterborough, the three years leading into the reporting of this book, had been losing 100 kids every year from their roles, their registration lists. Every year, they've been losing 100 kids um, for three straight years. So they, their registration have been dropping too. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of towns and cities and markets and minor hockey associations where, where that is very true. That's Sean Fitzgerald, who we heard from in episode one. Sean and his colleagues have been discussing this trend and its underpinning reasons for several years now. Declining minor hockey enrollment is not a universal truth for all Canadian minor hockey associations. In fact, there are examples across the country of hockey groups literally bursting at the seams, with the availability of ice being a greater concern than the number of players. To truly understand the complexity of the situation, looking at demographics and geography is key. Metropolitan associations in our large urban centers are going to be different than the rural towns where population figures in general continue to decline as young people flock to the cities. What could be causing the decline in hockey signups? Today's youth have multiple competing interests for their time. Undoubtedly, parents make choices with respect to choosing sports for their children based on a large range of factors. Really, it's very much a family decision. It is certainly possible that in particular cases, sports other than hockey offer potential benefits that influence decisions away from the rink. Both basketball and soccer enrollment have been increasing in Canada, and it's easy to speculate as to why. But is hockey itself really the problem? Probably the best example is the significantly increased interest in basketball, driven in part by the success of the NBA champion Toronto Raptors. I actually took a year off of hockey um, at a really odd time to do it. I asked my friend and my collaborator on this project, Matt Martin, what his experience was in youth hockey. I was in grade eight, and I wanted to play on the basketball team, and I felt like I couldn't do both. And it was strange to do that where I came from because if you were a young boy, especially, you played hockey. And hockey was kind of the, the end-all and be-all, but I wanted some range in sports. I wanted to, to see what I liked. And so I went and played basketball and I loved it. And coming back, of course you lose a bit of a step because you've lost a season and your peers haven't. But within a couple games, I felt like I was pretty close to where I was prior to having left the sport. And I was happy to come back to it. I felt more energized than ever because I had taken that break. Is there data to back up the significance of taking time away from the game as Matt did? Let's go back to Sean Fitzgerald. 
you know, your child can build, you know, better, you know, skills, can, can avoid the risk of burnout if they do soccer or basketball or tennis or yoga or whatever, and just stay off skates that ultimately they'll catch up. And, you know, the benefits of, of doing other sports rather than, you know, specializing in just one or, you know, the, the science is increasingly there, the data is there, but at the human level, it can be really tough to, to see that. In fact, he's likely right. Let's go back to basketball. The NBA champion banner finally flies in Canada, and this has undoubtedly been a boon to youth enrollment. Canadians now reliably get drafted in the first round of every NBA draft, and Canadian youth are wanting to emulate their peers. Because of the increased interest in basketball, the infrastructure to support young players has grown. Better coaching and more sports-orientated schools will hopefully allow us to retain our basketball talent for longer in Canada. A deeper dive beyond the Raptor effect would suggest potential benefits in comparison to hockey. This is Sean Fitzgerald again. Um, but what basketball does have going for it that I think people are going to start you know, stumbling into pretty quickly is that its window, its window for being competitive doesn't really open really until you get to high school. That you're not drummed out of basketball as an eight-year-old. That you can play and have fun and keep learning and... You know, maybe by the time you are 17, all of a sudden you're six foot five, or maybe all of a sudden, you know, at 17, you're only five, eight, but gosh, you've got a great shot. Like, you know, it allows a broader, longer competitive window where you're not drummed out. You can just enjoy the game and continue, continue to develop because, you know, you're not drummed out before you get to high school. The game of hockey requires a complex skill set fundamentally centered on powerful skating skills that need to be learned early for kids to remain competitive. A favorite book of mine as a kid was Scrubs on Skates by the late journalist and author Scott Young. A main storyline was of an immigrant Polish kid, Bill Spunska, discovering hockey in high school, battling his way onto the high school team, and eventually finding his way to the Toronto Maple Leafs camp to fight for a spot on the historic roster. Although inspirational, This story is not realistic in 2020. Kids new to the game after the age of 10 or 11 would be hard-pressed to develop the skill set necessary to compete with kids that are light years ahead of them by the time they're eight. In fact, the gap widens so quickly that if you're not in the earliest cohort of those selected for development camps and travel teams, it's almost impossible to make the jump. A recent Globe and Mail article pulls data from Malcolm Gladwell's seminal book, Outliers, to deliver the following quote. The result, Gladwell says, is an iron law of Canadian hockey. In any elite group of hockey players, the very best of the best, 40% of the players will have been born between January and March. Those born in the last quarter of the year might as well just give up on hockey. There is evidence to suggest that this 40% holds more truth at the junior level. And by the time we look at birth dates of those who turn pro, it's more like 29% born between January and March. Nonetheless, the message is this. Specialization and early advantage in hockey is critically important. Is it possible that such early specialization is one of the factors pushing athletes away from hockey? Even the great one, Wayne Gretzky said, I was absolutely ecstatic to see the end of the hockey season. Gretzky told the National Post in 2000, One of the worst things to happen to the game, in my opinion, has been year-round hockey, and in particular summer hockey. All it does for kids, as far as I can tell, is keep them out of sports that they should be doing in the warmer weather. Let's hear from Sean Fitzgerald again. 
even if you then become six foot two, 220 pounds and a gifted athlete at 17, you've been drummed out of hockey for a long time, which again is another challenge that, you know, if you do have this hyper competitive approach at the type and novice and minor atom levels, uh, you risk streaming out a lot of potential athletes from your system before they even mature physically, emotionally, or intellectually. It's the hyper-competitive nature of the sport, coupled with the requirement for early and dedicated skill development that pushes our collective hockey culture to be so aggressive. It is not to say that we don't enjoy it. From a personal side, although I've often questioned the logic and sometimes my own sanity in extending my boys' hockey season by enrolling them on spring teams, there really was no doubt that I continued to enjoy watching them play. I also enjoyed the camaraderie and friendships that I've made with fellow parents and was proud that my sons made additional friendships, which they continue on with today. However, I am also aware that this opportunity, with its pros and cons that my children have had, is not accessible to all children. In the hockey community, the true elephant in the room is cost. Cost, perhaps above all else, is influencing the decline of youth enrollment, and as Sean Fitzgerald says, for some, it's drumming them out of the game. Is hockey expensive, Max? Yes. Do you ever hear me talking about that? Yes. Right. What makes hockey so expensive? Well, like just the equipment and like just to play, not not the equipment, not not like the traveling, but just literally to get your name signed onto the team. Registration, you're talking yeah. about. Yes. Yeah. And then there's plus like tournaments. Yes. And the travel and all that. Do you think some kids aren't able to play hockey because it's too expensive? 100%. Anybody that knows me knows I'm fascinated and perhaps somewhat frustrated and even disturbed by the cost of hockey sticks. I can distinctly remember an expensive hockey stick when I was 12 to 13 years old was $30 to $35. It is now completely normal to pay upwards of $250 for sticks for the kids that are the same age. This reflects a greater than 700% increase in price, an inflation rate that is significantly higher than much more important household items. Now to be fair, stick quality has drastically changed compared to the pieces of lumber we used to use, but I wonder how that translates into stress and pressure on kids and families. More importantly, is the cost of a stick the perfect metaphor for the bigger picture? A picture where cost is influencing enrollment and continues to make the game we love inaccessible to so many? Over the years, I've followed stories in the media which relate to minor hockey in Canada. Two of my favorite stories were about current NHL hockey players, Matt Duchesne and P.K. Subban. Links to these stories will be included in the show notes for this episode. Both articles follow a similar framework and deliver a timely and important message. For parents of promising young players, the struggle can be very real. In the articles, the parents of both Matt and P.K. outline in significant detail the financial burden that minor hockey puts on their families. The rising costs associated with minor hockey especially as the boys grew and played at higher levels of the game, are hard to wrap your head around. Mr. Duchesne and Mr. Subban quote economic numbers in the hundreds of thousands before either of their boys turned 18 years old. What's unique about their story is that it has a happy ending. 
In both stories, the fairy tale is realized and both boys make it to the NHL, ultimately signing multi-million dollar contracts to play the game they love. This, as we all know, is the exception and not the rule. What is alluded to, but perhaps overshadowed, is the story of their teammates and their families. Each respectively made the same or similar sacrifices, but the fairy tale did not come true. That is not to say that their journey was not in some ways worth it. We should hope that many of the sacrifices made for the game of hockey, whether it be by individuals or families, do pay off in the enjoyment of the game, in the creation of friendships, and perhaps the development of a lifelong love. However, I can't help but wonder if some of the financial burdens and commitments are crossing the line. High-level competitive hockey costs can be astronomical according to these stories and reflect the training, travel, and equipment required to compete at an elite level. However, costs at the grassroots level can be equally daunting for Canadian families. A recent survey of 1,000 families commissioned by Scotiabank and Flipgive suggests nearly 60% of families spent more than $5,000 a year to fund the sport, and nearly 90% were concerned about the impact the costs were having on the family's finances. Perhaps even more enlightening was the data suggesting the trade-offs families were making to facilitate participation in hockey. These included taking on more debt or additional jobs, downsizing homes, reducing family vacation time, or reducing household items or repairs. The Peets are sort of the narrative spine for a story about you know, where hockey is in Canada in you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, and today. Sort of a snapshot. And, and the idea is, is you know, we've been talking about these forces that have been, you know, you can call it pressure on hockey at the grassroots level for years, generations. You know, the, the sticks are too expensive. The, the skates are too expensive. The gear is too expensive. Ice time's too expensive. So we thought, you know, we've been talking about these trends for so long. Why don't we examine, you know, what impact they're having and how they're shaping the game and, and, and how we relate to the game. And, you know, the peats are the narrative spine. So through that, you know, you know, generally speaking, in Canada now, kids who make it to high-level hockey tend to be from major urban centers. It's also, you know, anywhere above house league, anywhere where you sort of start getting into that competitive stream, there are other costs associated with it. We don't always, we don't always, I don't think, appreciate it. So, you know, as a parent, do you have a car? As a parent, do you have the flexibility at work to, you know, on a Wednesday, maybe get out at 3.30 to take your kid to a 4.30 or 5 p.m. practice on the other side of town? Do you have the flexibility in your job to take a Friday off because that's when tournaments start these days? Like there's a bunch of different barriers that hockey's allowed to sort of sprout up around it. And it's it's not just the myth of the $300 stick, which, by the way, isn't a myth, but um, it, it's everything. And Yes, I mean youth sports across the spectrum can be can be a little hectic. You, if you have a child in competitive swimming or competitive dance, and you're listening to this, you, this sounds a lot like your reality too. The ritual of the parents' meeting normally starts the hockey season for every hockey team. This is an opportunity for the coaches and team managers to address the parents with team philosophy, coaching philosophy, expectations, plan tournaments and outlines for disciplinary actions if required. In the time that I've been involved with hockey, this meeting has been increasingly concentrated on discussion centered around team budget. In addition to registration, hockey teams generally have an additional budget, which is responsible for covering tournament entry fees, season-ending parties, and team swag. 
team swag refers to purchases the team plans to make in regards to things like jackets or hats, socks, or even team bags. There is generally a race at the beginning of the season to get orders in for teams in order to outfit them for the first game or at least for the first tournament of the season. There are many stories that circulate every year about kids getting new team jackets in September with a new logo despite the fact that their jacket from last year still fits perfectly. Many families have multiple children who end up playing on the same team separated by one or two years and have multiple collections of Hawks or Sabres or Senators jackets and hats in their closets. As children get older, team budgets and team swag grow with the new additions to the budget, including things like bus trips, sponsored team specialized athletic training, or purchases of extra ice time for development. At the start of the season, the discussion centers around how much fundraising needs to be done to fill out the team budget, and in some circumstances, whether the team wants to fundraise at all or simply write a check. There is an irony here that families that can afford to enroll their children in minor hockey are often fundraising to help support that pursuit. What is somewhat bothersome to me is that often the fundraising is for items that do not actually contribute to the play on the ice, but rather the look off the ice. I wonder about the impact on the children that do not have the opportunity to play hockey, basketball, or soccer, but are surrounded by their friends at school with jackets and hats proudly displaying exactly where they play. Although I do recognize the kids are proud to wear their jackets, I wonder sometimes whether this NHLification of minor hockey is more for the parents than the players. Have we crossed a line with minor hockey in regards to our obsession with competitive streams, NHL-like experiences, and early specialization? Does the experience in hockey represent our approach to all sports? And does it reflect a cultural approach to striving for, measuring, and ultimately obtaining success for our children? What are the risks of this approach? And what effects are they having on the game? Is this the reason behind the flattening enrollment or player attrition over time? And what adjustments should be made to counter this trend if so? I think discussion is the first step. There's hockey on TV it's Saturday night. At the rink across the road, they play under the lights. Come winter time, it's the game that we love. I just play for fun, but there's hockey in my blood. Down to the rink, to the pond, to the river. There's a game going on, going on. Thank you for listening to Going to the Show. If you have comments about what you have heard, stories you would like to share, or ideas about future episodes, please feel free to contact me via the email address goingtotheshowpod at gmail.com.